to Thomas Tessier's World of Hurt. I'm Chris L. McKenna. Today's story will stay with you. It first appeared in The Earth Strikes Back, Tales of Ecological Terror in 1994, and is always counted among Mr. Tessier's most humorous and most haunting tales. Please enjoy I Remember Me. Glenn came out of the building on Park Avenue South and stood on the sidewalk. He wasn't sure what to do. A couple of the men out by the curb noticed him and exchanged words. One of them walked briskly toward Glenn. Ah, yes, he would be a pointer. Cab, sir, or directions? Yes, a cab, please. The pointer raced to the curb and waved at the passing river of traffic. The other man stood by with an approving look on his face. He would be the pointer's pointer. No doubt the pointer's pointer's pointer was on patrol nearby. They did an amazing job, moving millions of people around Manhattan every day. But now the man came back, visibly upset with himself. What was it again, sir? Glenn looked at the piece of paper he discovered in his hand. A taxi, he read aloud. Gotcha this time. The pointer turned back to the road and resumed his attempts to flag down a vacant cab. A few moments later, he had one. Thank you, Glenn said as he got into the vehicle. You do have your destination, sir? Yes, thanks. Thank you. The pointer closed the door and bustled away. Such a polite man, Glenn reflected. He handed his piece of paper to the driver, who nodded gravely, and consulted a plastic chart that was mounted on the dashboard before he finally entered the destination. Then the taxi accelerated smoothly, edging into the flow. The driver, meanwhile, settled back with a gaudy tabloid. Glenn could even see the headline on the open page. I even forgot how to make love! (laughs) As the street signs went by, Glenn recognized them, but when they passed an expanse of wooded land, he suddenly felt uncertain. It was big and rather attractive. The leaves had such brilliant colors. But what was it? Glenn asked the driver, who was unhappy about being disturbed. Central Park, he replied a minute later when he spotted a sign that said Central Park West. I thought so, Glenn told himself. A park that big could only be Central Park. He had known all along. You can know a thing, even if the name for it slips your grasp. It was nothing to fret about. It didn't mean you were stupid sick. Everyone has such lapses from time to time. It was... But Glenn was too tired to think about it right now. Just past 99th Street, the taxi swung around boldly and came to a stop in front of a large apartment building. The driver sat up and looked around. Here you are. Thanks. Glenn paid the fare. Money was still fairly easy because it had numbers on them. Numbers went deep. Money went deeper. Money would last until the end, no doubt about that. He put his wallet back into his jacket pocket and caught sight of two words penned in blue ink on the inside of his wrist. Glenn Barnes. And you are? The doorman asked. Glenn Barnes? The doorman checked Glenn's face against the house photo bank on the desk terminal. 
Apparently everything was in order, as the doorman soon looked up and smiled. Yes, sir, Mr. Barnes. You're in apartment 1120, as I'm sure you know. Yes, of course. Thank you. Glenn hesitated, searching the wide lobby with anxious eyes. The, uh... The elevators are around there, to your right. You haven't moved them since this morning? <laughs> Couldn't be bothered. Nice to see you again, Mr... And you, Jimmy. George. George, yes. <laughs> what happened to Jimmy? There's no Jimmy here, Mr. Glenn. Really? I, I am sorry. <laughs> My mistake. You're thinking of another place. Where you work, maybe. Yes, yes, that, uh, that must be it. What a strange man, Glenn thought as he stepped into the open elevator. 1120, was it? He noticed he was sweating. It would help if everybody wore name tags. But there were others who said that would only make matters worse. Glenn didn't see how that was possible. He found a card key in his wallet and tried it on the door. It worked. He went inside. It was a pleasant-looking apartment. It was his. And hers. She smiled at Glenn, came and gave him a kiss on the cheek. Hi, Glenn. Hello. Dear. A lot had changed with the coming of the flu. Glenn sat and watched the news on the television. Glenn's wife was in the kitchen doing something. Glenn had a small notebook in his hand. He flipped through it discreetly, and in a few minutes he found the page he was looking for. Her name was Marion. But he knew that. Of course. Marion. Yes? How are you, Marion? Fine. Dear. Glenn quickly scanned the rest of the page and saw much that was immediately familiar to him. You see, he thought, it's still all there. She, has a mild case of high blood pressure, is a lapsed Catholic, works at a shelter for teenage girls, likes icky French pop singers, but does not speak or give French, and is generally lazy in bed, reads historical, likes microwave cuisine, drinks one spritzer at night, hates smoke, except her father's pipe. Her father is Phil, mother invalid. Glenn slipped the notebook back into his briefcase and looked at the television again. The economic news was very good. There was virtually no unemployment now, thanks to the pointer program. There was a dark cloud attached to the silver lining, however, as it seemed that the demand for pointers would continue to grow for the foreseeable future, the need far outstripping the supply. It didn't take a genius to see what was coming. There was also news about the flu. The news was that there was no news, just a new statement to the effect that its symptoms were still believed to be transient in nature and not permanent, deteriorating alterations. A doctor told the newsperson that six years was not too long a time for symptoms to persist. Good God, Glenn thought. Don't tell me we've had the flu for six years now. That is a bit much. He got up and went into the kitchen to raise this point with his wife. She hastily closed a notebook she was studying and shoved it into her handbag. Glenn emerged from his apartment building and stood there. A pointer soon appeared to help him, but had trouble finding a cab. You could try to flag one down yourself if you knew that was what you needed, 
but the drivers gave preference to the pointers. The thing to do was to cooperate. Everyone had to change and adjust, otherwise nothing would work anymore. As he waited, Glenn heard a loud metallic voice coming from the park. When the light changed and there was still no taxi, he went to see what was going on. A crowd had gathered around a man who stood on a red plastic crate. He had a megaphone. The flu is not a virus. The flu is not just a bunch of bacteria. The flu is a single organism. The biggest, most vicious creature alive on this planet. It sweeps across the continents and oceans as if they were nothing, and it feeds on us like locusts on a field of corn. It decimates us, and with every new feeding season, the disaster grows far greater. Soon, the dark process will be complete, the final changes wrought, and ev- Hey, how do you know all this? A heckler cut in. I know because I worked for the government. I learned the awful truth they're trying to keep from you. I know. Yeah, but how do you remember it? This produced gales of raucous laughter. Glenn smiled. What was he supposed to be doing? He had a piece of paper in his hand and he was wearing his suit for work. He made his way out of the crowd and headed toward the street. A young man approached. Need a cab, sir? Yes. Are you a pointer? Yes, sir. Don't you have a badge? Or a uniform? They abandoned that idea, sir. Negative psychology. Where are you going? He took the destination chit from Glenn's hand and peered at it briefly. Downtown. You're in luck, sir. I've got a taxi here with a couple other downtown passengers. And there's room for one more. Hurry up. They're ready to go. I don't want to share a ride. We've all got to cooperate, sir. I hope you're not one of those selfish people who refuses to pitch in and make sacrifices like the rest of us. Well, no. That's the spirit. Here you go. Glenn slid into the back seat of the taxi. There was a burly fellow already there, and another soon followed, sandwiching Glenn in the middle. No one said anything. The taxi moved away, and a short while later it swung out onto a road that ran through the park. The dying leaves were wonderful color now. It was that season of the year. Glenn wished he had a window. The man on his right suddenly hit him in the face. The man on his left began hitting him in the stomach. They kept hitting him, and Glenn never had a chance to say anything or resist. His mouth was full of loose teeth and blood. His vision was blurred, and he couldn't breathe. Then something hit him on the head, and he had only the vaguest sensation left in his body. He was being moved. He flew in the air, landed, fast and hard. His briefcase was gone. His pockets were empty. His hands were empty and bleeding. Glenn must have landed on them when he hit the pavement. He wandered about for a while after coming to, and now he was sitting beside a pool of water. His head and body ached tremendously. He took off his tie, dipped it in the water, and cautiously touched his face with it. His skin stung. He knew his lips were swollen, and his teeth felt wobbly. The usual host of people moving about. They ignored him. He lowered a hand into the water and then began to pat it dry with a patch of tie. Glenn sponged off some of the grit and gravel. Where the skin was only blood-stained and not torn, he rubbed harder to get clean. Then he saw the faint ink marks swirling off with the blood, vanishing in the water. And he froze. My name was there, Glenn realized too late. 
A few traces of ink remained, but they formed nothing. Not even a single complete letter. This could be very bad, he told himself. But don't panic too soon. He knew a lot about himself. He had a job. He had a wife. He had an apartment. His job was downtown. That phony pointer had said so. These simple facts were hardly conclusive, but they were good to know, and he was determined to hang on to them. A little later, he saw a policeman who listened patiently to his story. The policeman explained that such muggings were quite common nowadays, and that the streets were full of people who had more or less lost their identities this way. Glenn wondered if he had heard about it on the news and then forgotten it. What can I do? You don't remember your name? Not even your first name? Not at the moment. I hit my head and... Yeah. Same thing with your address and place of work? Yes. Okay, here's what you do. There's an identification center in the Plaza Hotel. That's the nearest one to here. If you ever had your fingerprints taken or if you have any kind of criminal record, they'll have it on a computer and they can confirm who you are. Otherwise? Otherwise, you got a problem. There's talk about creating a national identity program, but that's probably a couple of years away. In the meantime... The policeman shrugged. This is terrible. Makes you wish you'd knocked over a gas station when you were a teenager, don't it? Hey, cheer up. Maybe you did. Why didn't they tell us it was this bad? They've been telling us for the last few years, the policeman said after consulting a fact sheet. You just keep on forgetting about it. That's how this thing works. God, it's fiendish. Damn right it is. You don't notice until something happens, so you get pushed off your spot and you can't get back. The policeman pointed him in the right direction and wished him luck. As he walked along, he became aware of the large number of people who seemed to be wandering about aimlessly. Perhaps he was just imagining it as a result of his current state, but where was the sense of purpose in their stride? The glimmer of focus in their eyes? He was disturbed by the presence of so many bodies on the ground. They were lying everywhere. On the benches and in the grass, some were even sprawled on the sidewalk. Some of them almost looked dead. But surely the situation hadn't reached that point yet. Dead bodies rot, they smell, they cause disease. But he had to admit that the signs were not good. The line of people outside the hotel was enormous. It would be hours before he got inside. The line didn't seem to be moving at all. He might have to come back tomorrow or the next day. As far as he knew, he'd never broken the law or been fingerprinted, but it was apparently his only chance. He moved along looking for the end of the line. Then a short man took him by the elbow and leaned close. Looking for an ID? I'm looking for mine, yes. I got just what you need. Credit cards, keys, social security, addresses, phone numbers, everything a guy needs to get going again. The whole package. But is it mine? You gotta start somewhere, pal. I don't have any money. Then what are you wasting my time for? The little man disappeared into the throng. It took a while to realize how unsettling that exchange really was. Identities for sale. 
but what good would it do? You couldn't just take the contents of someone's wallet and pockets and gain the benefit of their identity. An interloper was bound to be exposed at home or at work. No, this was a scam, pure and simple. First, you robbed some unfortunate person, and then you sold their useless personal papers to someone desperate enough to try anything. There was one more aspect to this that particularly worried him. What if you walked into another person's home, and the wife didn't recognize you as an imposter? She had forgotten what her husband looked like, and she had no photographs, or she thought they were photographs of someone else. You had the key. You were acting as if you belonged there. Would she accept the wrong man? Was anything like that possible? No, of course not. But when he tried to form a mental picture of his wife's face, he could not fill in any details. Late in the afternoon, the air turned very cold. A nasty wind set in, and the sky was gray with wintry menace. He was in line, but had advanced only a few yards, or so it seemed. If he had to come back tomorrow, where would he spend the night? He felt weak and sluggish, and it occurred to him that he was hungry. But how could he get anything to eat without money? If he had somebody's credit card, at least he could get a meal in a restaurant, if the card still worked. But if he had cash to buy a card, he could buy food more easily. The grave implications of his predicament were pressing on his mind. This is all because of the flu? He asked the man, tottering vacantly beside him in the line. What flu? The flu. You know, the flu. If you say so. It was pointless. He had to think. Perhaps he could find a safe corner in the bus station or the train station, a, a doorway sheltered from the wind, something like that. People lived that way and survived. What shocked him to the core was how suddenly it had happened to him. One minute he was being driven to work, the next he was literally thrown away like garbage. And from the moment he came into the park, he could feel the awful change that was taking place. Terrible new facts assailed his brain. He was losing the will to resist. He could almost feel it leeching away. Helplessness was rooting itself in him. Mike? The breathless voice of a plain young woman. He had noticed her approaching, studying the faces in the line. Now she stared at him with frantic eyes. Oh my God, it is you! Oh, Mike! Oh, Mike! The woman threw her arms around him. She hugged and kissed him and told him how she had searched and searched for him. She had almost given up hope of ever finding him. This just happened to me today. That's what you think. But how do you know the way you remember is more accurate than what you've forgotten? Besides, don't you think I know my own husband? Tell me your name. Roberta. Roberta Stone. And you're Mike Stone. <laughs> I bought that shirt for you at the Smartfellas shop. Mike Stone. Surely it would come ringing back to mind if that was his name. But maybe it was symptomatic to draw a blank. There were no rules in this new situation. You had to play it by ear all the time. Mike was a short and simple name. And in that respect, it did feel somehow right. What should I do? 
what do you think you should do, silly? She put her arm through his and pulled him out of the line. You should go home, where you live. Now, with me. Should we get a taxi? He heard himself asking. What are you, made of money? I don't have any money. So what else is new? Home was a rather drab basement apartment on West 54th near 11th Avenue. Roberta had the address tattooed to the back of her left hand. She had her name on the heels of her feet. There were hot dogs for supper and a warm bed later. The next morning, she took him around to Skin Painter, who made sure that Mike Stone would never lose track of his life again. What can I do? Mike Stone asked Roberta Stone. You were unemployed before you got lost. What about you? Oh, I don't work. Well, how do we pay the rent and buy things? Oh, interest from the sale of my mother's house. You mean we don't have to do anything? Neat, huh? Until the French-cut string bean fiasco. There was big news about a shipment of frozen French-cut string beans into Manhattan. Food had become a problem. Either the farmers forgot to plant it or harvest it, or the middlemen forgot to process and deliver it. Something was always going wrong, it seemed. But then a few tons of French-cut string beans arrived. The government had found them in a freezer. Roberta bought as many packages as she could grab. So did Mike Stone. He was watching the news on the television. The news was about how no one had heard from Europe in a long time. Well, they said it was a long time. But how could they be sure? Perhaps it was just the day before yesterday. There was also news about the flu. The news was that there was no news. But a doctor explained that the symptoms continued to persist. He said that was not very unusual, even after eight years. Good God, have we had the flu for as long as that? Eight years? He got up and went into the kitchen to raise this point with Roberta, whose name was tattooed along the right side of his left index finger. She had a wrapper in her hand. There were a couple of green blocks on the counter, frozen French-cut string beans glistening with moisture. She looked very unhappy, at a loss. He knew that something was wrong, so he didn't mention the flu. What's happening? I don't understand. What? What do you do to get this stuff ready? Oh, it's right there on the wrapper. He took the foil paper from her hand and studied it. There was a picture of piping hot string beans with butter melting over them. Well, that's how you do it. Fluffy, like that. Well, that's how you eat them. But how do you get to where they're like that? He looked at the directions. Put them in a pot with a half inch of water, heat to a boil, cover, turn down the heat, then let simmer until tender. That means test them after five minutes or so to see if they're done. Okay? She nodded. But a while later, he discovered that she had put the covered pot in the oven and baked it. The handle melted and then began to burn. The beans were a dead loss. The next day, he took her out for a walk. A very long walk. He lost her in the crowd. There were crowds everywhere now. But he wasn't worried. She could find her way home if she could read her tattoos, or get someone to read them for her and give her the right directions. There were so many pointers available. Of course, if she forgot to read the tattoos, or forgot what they meant, that would be a different matter. Roberta failed to return. 
After a few days, it seemed likely that she would never come back, which was more or less what he, Mike Stone, had expected. He managed quite well without her, and the time soon came when he stopped thinking about her at all. He had more important things to worry about by then. Some other people had moved into the apartment with him, a gang of young women and a couple of tough men, one of whom claimed to be the actual owner of the building. He had no documentation, but well, that was not surprising because paperwork had been in decline for a while now. Mike was allowed to sleep in the tiny front hallway every night, as long as he brought back food or firewood. It was a fair compromise, he decided. This arrangement worked for a short while. One of the young women began to show an unusual interest in him. This was quickly discouraged by the two men, who spent most of their time each day herding the women about on mysterious missions to unknown places. When they went out, Mike had to leave, too. Once, when he forgot to bring any food or firewood, they made him sleep outside in the stairwell. That was the day he came across a storefront office that had been converted into a branch of the Federal Identity Network. It was dark and empty inside, but a great many people stood about on the street as if expecting it to open for business again. What's the problem? I don't know. Mike waited a while. Nothing happened. Then a car sped by, drawing considerable attention since there was hardly any traffic anymore. Nothing else happened, so Mike left. The next day he saw a man hanging by the neck from an awning pipe. Pinned to his chest was a piece of cardboard on which the letters D.R. had been hand-printed. What does that mean? Mike asked someone. He was a doctor. How did they know? I don't know. Some little while later, on a similar day, Mike did not find his way back to the apartment. There was never a pointer around when you needed one. But then, there seemed to be less people on the streets, so the pointer program might have been discontinued. The warm weather had arrived, fortunately. Shelter was no longer a major problem. He was sitting on the curb, eating peanuts, when a woman sat down next to him. She was about his age. He offered her some of the peanuts. She took them, watched what he did, and then did the same thing. They smiled at each other. What's your name? He looked at his finger. Roberta. She looked at her hand. I'm Carl. Hi, Carl. Hi, Roberta. They shook hands. They spent that night in an empty office. They hugged and kissed and did it, and he felt better than he had in a long time. But when he woke up in the morning, she was gone, and so were his shoes. Why had she taken them, he wondered. He could find shoes easier than food. Besides, he was sure that she had her own shoes. He tried to picture her, and he concentrated on her feet. Well, maybe she didn't have any shoes. He watched a man standing by the curb. The man swayed as if he were caught in a windstorm, though the air was calm. The man looked up the street, then down, then up again, then down. There was no traffic to worry about, but the man stayed on the curb. A minute later, the man fell to the sidewalk. This park overlooked the water. The big buildings were back behind him. He liked the place. There were only a few people on the ground. A nice breeze. The taste of salt in the air. A very high blue sky. 
some puffy white clouds, a warm sun. He bent over and snatched a stalk of tall grass. It was like a miniature tree with leaves and branches sprouting from the top of it. He placed it between his teeth, not because he was hungry, but because it was a naturally irresistible thing to do. He found that he could twirl it around easily, without opening his lips. You must have done this before, he told himself. It was more pleasant to sit down than stand, just for a few minutes. Then he would have to get up and do something. He knew he had something to do, somewhere to go. It had slipped his mind just what, but it would come around again. The sun felt wonderful on his skin. He hoped it would fade the peculiar markings on his hands. He had no idea how they'd got there in the first place, and they were a nuisance to think about. He studied his fingers as if he were seeing them for the first time. Remarkable. He stretched out on his back and twirled the stalk of grass, imagining that it was a tree growing out of his mouth. The earth was warm beneath him. Sooner or later it would rain. He thought of the rain washing him into the ground. Yes, warm rain, sun, a deep blue sky far above, while I melt away like snow. Time to stand up, he says, but he does not stand up. Time to get up and go. He does not. Jeremy Cohenauer, John Durante, Jay Lee Hoyt, Adam Reeves, and Michael Reeser. Music by Jordan Peer. This has been a Watertown Arts production.